0: I am Lisa of Two Sober Chicks, and welcome once again to our speaker series edition of the podcast. And today we welcome Joe A from the Kenwood High Noon
1: Meeting. Joe, welcome. It's Joe, and I'm a recovering Holly. Um, we see that's ten after seven. Okay, yeah, I'm I'm not awake yet.
0: <laughs> I've been up for about forty-five minutes, coming out of shoot. 45 minutes after you make your bed and brush your teeth and shave. Um, I'm here today uh, really for one thing, and that's to keep my conscious contact with my higher power. And by doing so, I'm going to ensure my sobriety. Uh, There's a woman not too long ago, uh, she had 40 years and she started drinking after 40 years. And a woman that she sponsored called her up about a week after she started And she said, are you ready to come back? And she said, no. And she hung up on her. A couple of weeks later, she called her back and she said, are you convinced yet? And she said, no, and don't call me anymore. After 40 years of sobriety. There's another woman I know, and I've known her for quite a while. uh, I went to a meeting. You know how you go to a meeting that you haven't been to a while just to see different faces And uh, it was really good to see her. And I I said, how have you been? She said, I haven't been to this meeting in six months. I said, well, neither have I. I just come down here to see different people. And she said, well, I've been drinking the last six months. I said, really? I said, how long were you sober before
1: you drank? She said, three days before my 15th anniversary. And she said, "Uh, I know I should be sober. Um, I know I should want to get sober. But Joe, I don't want to get sober. And I said, then why are you here? And she said, well, in the last six
0: months, I lost my home, I lost my husband, I lost my family, my kids won't talk to me, I lost my car, and I don't have any money, and I'm here at the meeting. And she looked at me with those sad, sick eyes, and she said, but I don't have any desire to get sober. And I said, well, you know where we're at if you feel that you need us. And I could see the sickness in her eyes. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, the last time she got sober was in a state penitentiary in Marysville in Ohio. And I thought, you might need to go back to the penitentiary to get sober if you last that long. But the thing I got out of that for that day is I thought, you know, I went in and out of A quite a few times before I stayed sober. I didn't stick the first time I came. And I know what it's like to think, I think I'll go back if I start drinking again. I think I'll go back on Monday.
1: And then two months later, you show up. Um, I, I heard a man three days ago, he had been sober seven years. His business
0: was going so well, he was making tons of money. And he stopped coming to AA. And it, like a, a lot of times you hear in AA, he started to drink again. And he said, it took me 16 years to have the desire to want to come back to AA. He said, I I knew I should be sober. I asked God to help me be sober. He said, but it took me 16 years to get back. And uh, I got sober when I was 23. I'm 68 years old. And I thought to myself, well, that would be a terrible way to end my life if I lived another 15 years, knowing that I used to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, knowing what a good life I had. And not being able to muster up the desire to stay sober, knowing that I should be sober and I can't pull it off. I'm in, I'm in no man's land. You know, my dad used to like to watch uh, Friday Night at the Fights, the Gillette Friday Night at the Fights back in the 60s. And uh, he was really a good boxer. And so he loved to watch it. And a guy would be boxing and another guy would hit him and he'd be almost out on his feet. He didn't know where he was at. And he go, look, look, he's on Queer Street. He doesn't know where he's at. That's my dad talking. And I don't want to be on Queer Street. I don't want to be moving around and not knowing where I'm at and what my life is about with, with memories of what it used to be like to be sober. You know, I can see myself back in that sleeping room in that flop house I got sober in in 1978. I could see myself back in that building. Alone with everything that I own that's on that dresser, pictures of family that won't talk to me anymore, pictures of the home that I lost, uh, people that I won't communicate with me anymore, and thinking to myself, you know, I used to be somebody in AA. God damn, I was sober almost forty-five years, and I started drinking again, and now I'm back in this flop house. I know I should be sober. I know I should want to get sober but I don't want to get sober. I have no desire to get sober. I can't make myself. I've asked God to help me and I can't get back to the life that I used to have. That's why I'm here. I'm not here to make friends. I'm not here to get you to like me. I'm not here to get you to agree with me. I'm here because I don't want to go back to that place where I have no desire to stay sober or get sober. I've lived a pretty good life since October the 5th, 1978. And I want to keep it that way. And that's that's really why I'm here. That's the essence of why I'm here today. You know, I've been thinking to myself what I wanted to talk about. And you might say, well, you know, you've been sober a long time. Don't you know what you want to talk about? It's actually harder to tell my story now than it was when I was new. When I was new, a couple of years sober, it's easy to talk about what it was like, what happened, what I'm like now. But what should I talk about today? Year 41? How about year 36? How about year 25? How about year 19? Do you see what I'm saying? So I I have to pick out certain things that I want to talk about to kind of tell my story in a general way. So uh, I think I'm going to try to do that early in the morning, half awake. <laughs> um, my, uh, my drinking started in 1967. I was a 13-year-old kid. I was invited to a party, and they were all smoking pot. And, this girl's brother had sent pot home from Vietnam in a pillowcase, and she'd get new pillowcases every month, and they invited me to the party. I was 13 years old, and they were all 17 and 18. And I smoked that, and my mouth got so dry, they said, here, kid, you've got cotton mouth. Drink this, this bottle. And it was a bottle of Ballyhigh High wine. And I love Ballyhigh High wine. It, it almost tastes like Tahitian tree or fruit punch or high sea. I just love it. Oh, man, just I couldn't stop smacking my lips. Before you know it, I drank the whole bottle. And they said, you're supposed to pass that bottle around. I said, well, nobody told me. I drank a big bottle of Valley High. And the thing I remember about that night is I walked in 13 and I walked out feeling 18. And I think that's the thing that makes me an alcoholic. You know, we have a big book and we've got the doctor's opinion and I have to remember that's just an opinion. He he really doesn't know why we drink the way we do. He observes that we drink more than other people. He, he thinks it might be an allergy, but he, it's an opinion. Uh, nobody really knows why we drink the way we do. So that really doesn't describe me as an alcoholic fully. Uh, but I think what describes me makes me an alcoholic is when I drink alcohol, it changes the way I see the world without changing the world at all. You know, I've, I've been to Al-Anon parties with my wife and I've watched these non, non-alcoholics non drink and they don't drink like me. They have a drink, a drink and a half. And they go, oh, that's it. I'm, I'm getting a little hot. I, I need to stop, you know. And people, they laugh at that. And I said, we're the ones in AA. That's a normal reaction to alcohol. That's the body's way of saying danger. Don't go any farther. Or they might say, oh, I'm feeling like I'm losing control. You know, I, I don't feel like that at all. I could walk into a, a room full of people and feel inferior and inadequate. Like I really don't belong there. Like I don't have anything in common with these people. And after two or three drinks, I know they're glad that I'm here and I feel superior to them. And I'm, I'm the life of the party. And it didn't change them at all, but it changed the way I saw the world without changing the world at all. And that's alcoholism. And it only does it to people like me. It doesn't do it to non-alcoholics. I thought it did it to everybody. So I think that's the best definition of what makes somebody an alcoholic. If it changes the way you see the world without changing the world, I remember getting letters when I was on Skid Row from uh collection agencies. It had the red type on it, you owe us this, and we're gonna do this to you. And I go, Oh my God, what am I gonna do? And I'd have a few drinks of whiskey and I go, I'd rip it up and throw it over my shoulder, I'd go. You'll get yours when I get mine, buddy. And I just feel like a million bucks. It, it didn't change any. It didn't change the outside world, but it changed how I felt about the world I lived in. Uh, I grew up in the 60s. It was a it was a turbulent time to grow up in in the United States. Uh, there were college campus riots against the Vietnam War. And, uh, the president got shot and killed. His brother got shot and killed. Martin Luther King got shot and killed. They went to the moon. I mean... It was one thing after another, and it was a really turbulent time in society. And as a young kid, I, I think I was just amazed, and I was I was swept up in all this stuff that I saw in the news every day. There was a lot of social unrest, and uh, I ran across some people that were drinking and, and getting high. And uh, I don't I don't bring up drugs to disrespect Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean. My God, think about it. I'm 13 years old. It's 1967, and I'm not smoking a joint going, this will piss them off at AA in 2023. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know I was coming, did you? I mean, I'm not doing anything to disrespect AA. It's just a matter of that. That was my story. And that led me on a journey of trying all different types of drugs over the years. As a kid growing up, I drank from 13 to 23 in my formative years. So I missed a lot of things. I was just drunk or stoned all the time. And uh, I was looking for something. I didn't know I was actually looking for something until I found alcohol. When I found alcohol, I, I didn't immediately become crazed and go, I got to have it. I got to have it. But something happened that night. I began to become demoralized. And what I mean by that is I knew the difference between right and wrong, good and bad, Uh I was taught that at home and in church and and, at school. Uh, But that night when I went home, my my mother said, how come your eyes are so pink? I said, well, I was in a car with a bunch of guys. They were smoking cigarettes and they had the windows rolled up. My eyes were irritated from the cigarette smoke." just a lie just rolled right off my tongue like it was natural. And she said, what was the score of the football game? Because I was supposed to go to the football game. And I made up a score that wasn't even real because I didn't even go to the game. So I'm lying about why my eyes are pink. I'm lying about where I've been, you know, who I've been with. And that set up a way of life from that day all the way up to the day I got sober and Alcoholics Anonymous. When I was 13, I was still going to church as a young kid. And I was an acolyte. I I lit the candles in the church and collected the money and and all that stuff. And when I started drinking, I started stealing money out of that tithing plate. And I stole money to buy foo-foo alcohol like, cherry vodka, and uh, screwdriver, and bags of pot and stuff like that. And I thought, why am I doing this?
1: Why am I stealing from the people that love me? And I could not believe that I was doing it. Um, I didn't know that I had alcoholism, that alcoholism said, you will do what you have to do to
0: get what you have to get. But I, I didn't know that. I wasn't conscious of it. And the next week I'd go back to church and those little old ladies with the blue hair would say, that Joe, he's really nice. He's going to be somebody someday. And I thought, oh, my God, if you only knew that I stole your money out of that plate, you wouldn't be saying that. So it set up this, it it, it demoralized me from the very beginning. And I would mentally dismiss it like, oh, well, I'll pay it back or that didn't happen. I, 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 would, I would just mentally brush it off. Uh, by the time I'm 16, I'm running away from home. Uh, I've got a job as a busboy in a Chinese restaurant in North Miami Beach. And I'm living in a trailer park. And uh, this was 1971.
1: Uh, everybody was hitchhiking around the country at that time. And uh, I was down there a couple of months and got homesick. I was 16
0: years old. And I came back after a couple of months and got into an argument with my mother and ran away from home again. And just it started that cycle. Uh, I was lying to myself. Uh, I'm running from myself. And I didn't even know. I didn't know what was wrong with me and uh, had to end up going into the Navy because I couldn't finish high school. I lost. I missed so much school that uh, I finished the 11th, the 10th grade of high school because I dropped out my junior year a month before we were supposed to finish that year. And I went into the Navy and I thought, I'm going to start over. I'm going to get a career. I'm, I'm, I'm going to just wipe the slate clean and go into something new. And uh, they put me in the bottom of a ship because I hadn't completed school. And if you didn't complete school, they put you where they had a need. And they put me in the bottom of a ship in a boiler room. And I thought I had died and went to hell. <laughs> it was so hot down there. It's like 110 degrees. The ships always roll. And I thought, oh, my God, four years of this. I got to get the hell out of here. And after about a year and a half, I played a game to get out on flat feet because I realized you can't drink out in the middle of the ocean. So now I didn't, I know this now, but I didn't know it then that alcoholism was calling the shots. Alcoholism says got to go in the Navy and alcoholism says got to get out of the Navy. And, um, So I'm home after a year and a half, and people said, well, why why aren't you in the Navy? I thought you signed up for four years. I said, well, you know, it was a rolling of the deck plates, and my feet bothered me. It was all a lie. I was living a lie. I started living a lie from the age of 13. but I felt so good from alcohol, it didn't care. I mean, I didn't care. You know, you could see what you're doing, but when you drink and you feel great, and it changes the way you see the world without changing the world at all, you could be going to hell in a handbasket but it still looks good to you. It, it still looked good to me. And everybody around me saw me going down and they couldn't help me. You know, I went home to help my mother. And I'm 19 years old at this time. Me and my brother are still living with my mom. My mom's a sober member of AA. She got sober in 1971. And she's got two drunken sons, 19 and 16 years old, coming in drunk at night, tearing her house up drunk. I'd come home. You know how you get hungry when you're drunk. I'd come home at four in the morning and put a whole pound of bacon on the skillet and turn the flame up high. Smokes rolling all over the place. My mom comes out and she said, Joe, you've got a problem with your drinking. You, you can't keep doing this stuff. And I said, you're out of your mind. Those people in A have you brainwashed. You think anybody that drinks is an alcoholic? Get the hell away from me. I mean, that's the way I talked to my mother. And uh, she eventually got up enough nerve to kick
1: me and my brother out. And I got a, a room on uh, Scott Street. L- let me let me shut this blind. Yeah. Or just hold on, just a minute. That's better. I got a, a flop house on Scott Street,
0: and uh, I've got shadow of face. That's all right. Won't change the story. And uh, my room was. Uh, I was th- I was the only guy in the building under sixty five. I'm twenty one years old. And we're all sharing the same bathtub and the same toilet on the second floor. I've got a bare mattress on the floor for a bed and a cardboard box turned upside down for an end table. I've got plastic curtains with crease on, grease on the blinds. I have a light that hung hung from a wire up from the ceiling. And I had a sink in my room. And that's all. But alcohol was still working for me. It, it, it was still working for me. I'd come in drunk at 2 or 3 in the morning and lay down on that on that mattress, and I'd look over at that cardboard box. I said, a cardboard box? And alcohol would say, that's okay. It's a member of the wood family. We'll get you real wood one day. You just hang in there. And I'd go, oh, okay, all right. Or I'd wake up and something would be doing this on my face like that, and I'd just flip it off and be a roach. And I thought, well, everybody's got to have a place to live. And I just passed back out. Alcohol was still working for me. It made an unacceptable situation totally acceptable. And uh, I didn't know I was powerless over alcohol. Me as an alcoholic,
1: and like many alcoholics, alcohol doesn't look like a problem. Powerless over alcohol, life unmanageable, does not look like the problem. I had been down uh, on Scott Street for a couple
0: months and I grew up in Ohio and uh, I thought I'm going to call somebody back in Ohio. So
1: I went over to the pay phone across the street from the building I lived in and I put a dime in the phone. And I heard the dial tone and I listened to the dial tone for about 30 seconds. And I suddenly realized I don't have anybody to call. And I hung up and
0: I got my dime back and I walked down the street. I was half lit, half lit on wine you know, I guess the reason I tell you that is because powerless over alcohol, life unmanageable doesn't look like alcohol to me.
1: It it sounds like a dial tone. It just sounds like, well, I don't have anybody to call. I remember, uh, that was, uh, in 1977 in December of that year on the 24th,
0: I was in a car wreck. I was in the backseat of a car and, uh, my feet stayed under the back seat and my lips kissed the dash when, when we hit head on with the other car. I almost broke my shins, you know. So I went to the hospital and they gave me this big bottle of codeine and uh, set me set me on my way. And I went back to my sleeping room and I ate a couple of those codeines and I drank some whiskey. And that was on the 24th. And I woke up and I'm walking down the street. And I saw this guy, this little kid, he looked to be about nine years old. I said, Merry
1: Christmas, kid. He said, that was yesterday, mister. And I thought, what? Yesterday? I mean, I just went to bed on the 24th. And I looked at a
0: newsstand. And the newspaper said, December 26,
1: 1976. See, That was 1976. And I thought, oh, well, maybe next year, huh? Powerless over alcohol, life unmanageable, doesn't look like alcohol. Sometimes it just
0: looks like you miss Christmas, but it doesn't look like alcohol. The following month, I had hitchhiked up to a bar in the local neighborhood across the river where I lived. And when the doors closed, nobody wanted to be around me anymore because I was drunk and I was erratic. They didn't want me to so say, don't put him in your car. He does bizarre stuff. The doors closed. I had no hat, no gloves. I had an old navy pea coat on with bib overalls on, shirt, socks, and shoes. That night it was 25 below and the wind chill factor was 70 below. People walked across the Ohio River that year. I remember walking with no hat on about a mile to another neighborhood and somebody picked me up. I was hitchhiking. And the next thing I know, I'm downtown Cincinnati. And the car drove away and there was nobody around but me. I guess even the police weren't out. They figured if you could steal it, you could hail it. It's too, we're not going out there. And I, I ducked into the crew tower and I thought I've got to get over the river to 15th and Scott to get back to my building and the buses aren't running. I've got money, but the buses aren't running. And so I got halfway over that river, and it was cold. I mean, even when you're drunk, that's cold. Seventy below wind chills, just bitter. And if you would have stopped me in the middle of that bridge that, that night and said, Joe, you think you have a problem with your drinking? i go, well, no, I don't have a problem with my drinking. I've got a transportation problem. I've got 30 cents, but the buses aren't running. But now that you're out here, let me tell you what my problem is. It's that mother. If she wouldn't have joined Alcoholics Anonymous, our family would still be together right now. I'd be a college graduate, but no, she had to go to that AA. It blew our whole family apart. It's the job I had in the Navy. You know, if I'd had a job in an air-conditioned office as a yeoman, I might have been a 20-year man in the Navy, but no, they put me in the bottom of that ship. It's the girlfriend that dumped me. I'm out here because I have a GED and I never finished school. It was a lot of reasons of why I'm out here, but it was never because of my drinking. Sometimes powerless over alcohol, life unmanageable, just looks like you missed the bus. But it does not look like alcoholism. Not to me, it didn't. Uh, The following year, uh, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous through a spiritual awakening. And uh, this is kind of apropos to talk about on a Sunday morning. I uh, had gone to my mother's house. I was closer to my mother's house in Ohio than I was my sleeping room in Kentucky. Now, I'd forgotten that she had a restraining order on me and my brother. We got within a few hundred feet of her house. We went to jail. And I knocked on her back door and she opened the door. I went, oh God, I'm going to jail. It just came back to me that I had a restraining order on me. That's how gone I was. And she seemed really happy to see me. And uh, she said, come on in. And she said, you know, the last time I saw you, I said, no. She said, I was coming home from an A New Year's Eve dance on, on January the 1st. And I was at a five-way intersection. It was about three in the morning and it was snowing. And I saw you standing in the snow by the bus stop talking to some guys. And she said, I, I had to drive on by because I knew if I picked you up, it wouldn't help you. It would just hurt you. And I thought, man, what, what a way to... <laughs> You know, you see your own son on the street and you got to drive by and act like you don't know him. That's the last time that she saw me. And I said, Mom, did you ever get the feeling that the harder you try to get somewhere in life, the farther back you fell? She said, yeah, I, I felt that many times. Joe, She said, look, I'd love to sit here and talk with you, but I've got to go open up the A clubhouse. I'm, I'm working the coffee bar. When you leave, please lock the door. And I thought, oh, this isn't set up. I'm, the cops are going to come here. But I was so tired. I said, okay, mom. And I sat in the recliner in her living room. But it was about 10 in the morning and I was out. And I woke up around noon and I, I, I felt different. I thought, what the hell is wrong with me? And I went to the back door of her house and she had this little rock garden. It's springtime, it's April the 9th. And it was an unusually warm spring. And uh, I opened the door and I looked at those flowers and it was like the first time I had ever seen flowers in my life. It was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen in my life. The most beautiful colors. And I, everything was in slow motion. It was like I saw the squirrel run across the yard and go up the tree. I heard birds like i would never heard birds before. Uh, I saw these little kids playing knot hole baseball. It was like their first knot hole baseball game of the spring. They're like, they're young kids. Do you know how their the little suits don't fit them. they look like they have parachute pants on? One kid got his first hit in his life and he started running the third and they go, no, run the other way, run the first base. He didn't know which way to run. And I I just started to cry because this voice inside of me said, this has always been here. Where have you been? And it was as if, though, every bad emotion, you know, when we talk about the bedevilments in a big book on page 52, you know, I was prey to misery and depression. I couldn't maintain relationships. I couldn't hold a job. I, I, I couldn't be of any use to anybody. I went from that to completely happy, whole, and useful. I went, wow. And I thought, oh, you've lost your mind. You are out of your mind. And I'm doing dishes at my mother's house, listening to country western music. And I don't like either one. And I'm laughing because I'm crying. I'm crying because I'm laughing. I thought, what in the hell is wrong with me? I quit smoking. I quit cussing. It was like somebody just flipped a switch. And I called my mother up. I says, Mom, how do you stay sober? I says, something tells me I need to go where you go. And she's crying on the phone, going, oh, my God, he's one of us. I said, Mom, let me run this by you again. How do you stay sober? And she put me on the phone with a guy who talked with me for a few minutes. And he, he asked me if I'd come down to the meeting that night. And I said, no. I, I said, I feel like I've been on a merry-go-round going 90 miles an hour the last 10 years of my life. I, I'm going to go home. I'm going to take a bath in a community bathtub. I'll be down the next day. And I went down the next day to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I can't describe to you other than the fact that I felt like I was not allowed to touch any negative emotion. You know, Eckhart Tolle talks about being in the now. I was totally in the now. And I think that's the way God wanted me to be introduced to AA so I could hear what was being said. And my very first meeting, I'm sitting in the front row now. This is, it was about 77 degrees. I had boob overalls on with nothing underneath, no shirt, no underwear, no socks and a pair of old worn-out earth shoes. And I'm sitting in the front row, my hair's out to here. I know I, I, I smell bad because I couldn't wash the, the alcohol out of my pores. And uh, I'm 22 years old and I'm sitting next to a guy who's 50, I mean, he was way old, 50. And the sclera, the white part of his eye had grown over his iris. I said, what happened to your eye? This is my first meeting at AA. He said, well, my wife was so frustrated with 20 years of my drinking, she waited for me to pass out on the couch, and she poured sulfuric acid in my eye. And I went, damn, (laughs) I thought, what have I got myself into here, you know? And then the woman next to him was a self-proclaimed psychic. And then the guy next to her had just done seven years in the penitentiary. He was a Buddhist. And then next to him was a guy that used to be the historian for the riverboat, the Delta Queen. And uh, to my right was the guy that ended up being my sponsor. He was a welder at at a steel mill. And the guy next to him was his sponsor. And he was the top guy at Procter & Gamble in their accounting and computer department. Next to him was the top guy at Cincinnati Bell. And I'm looking around. I go, what in the hell have I got myself into here? Now I'm sitting there half closed. My hair's out to here. I have no job and I leaned over to the guy and go, "What's that mean up on that wall? Powerless and unmanageable? What's that mean?" <laughs> I'm totally powerless. I'm totally unmanageable, and I don't know what the hell they're talking about. And uh, the guy got up and talked that day. His name was Don Muchmore, and everybody I just described to you—they're all dead. Everybody in my first meeting is gone, but me. And he talked. He, he did five years in Eddyville Penitentiary. Don came off the streets and he, his nose was off to the side because a guy in a fight had hit him and broke his nose with a tire iron. And he said when he got out of the hospital, he got drunk at a bar and went and looked for that guy. And he found him and tied him to the railroad track and waited for the train to come. And I thought, what in the hell have I got myself into here? There's a guy with one eye. There's a psychic, a guy that tied somebody to a railroad track. What the hell have I got myself into here? Now I think, I think they're a wild group of people. I'm the one who's half closed with not nowhere to go. And that guy that day said something, he saved my life. He said, get a sponsor. And I thought, I don't know what a sponsor is. I might not have underwear, but damn it, I'm going to get a sponsor, whatever they are. And I turned to the guy next to me, Mike who was the welder at the steel mill. I said, hey, would you be my sponsor? And he said, yeah. And I'm at meetings where they go, how do you pick a sponsor? I said, well, just ask somebody. Don't make a big deal of it. If if you're new, just ask somebody. They'll know more than you do. And uh, he introduced me to the big book that day. He talked to me about what he did to stay sober. He didn't tell me what to do. He never told me what to do. In all the years I've known him, he never, ever told me what to do. He always talked about his experience, the way he saw things, what he had done, what worked for him and what didn't work for him. And I thought, well, this guy's nice, but obviously he doesn't know what I need. I need a job. I need a car. I need money. I need something. And that's that's the baffling feature of alcoholism. I'm powerless and unmanageable in a meeting and powerless and unmanageability looks to me like I need a job and a car. And that isn't what I need at all. I need a power that's going to protect me from myself. But I didn't know that. And I started this journey of going in and out of AA. I started I started smoking pot about 90 to 89 days sober and started drinking again and that that feeling of being in the now went away. And I started to find out what powerlessness was. I realized that what these people were saying were true. Cuz I thought to myself, if I get as old as you and have your problems, I'll quit and come back to AA. Now, I would say I'll drink I'm going to drink on Friday and go back to AA Monday. 2 months later I'd show up going Wow, you know, not knowing I couldn't come back for two months. I didn't choose to get sober. Nobody chooses to get sober anymore and they choose to be an alcoholic. And uh, one time I went to a, a hospital for alcoholism today, many times. And uh, I'm put in a room with a guy who's 60. God damn, he was old, 60. <laughs> and he smelled so bad. He smelled like formaldehyde. And my sheets smell like this guy. My pillowcase smelled like this guy. My my hospital gown smells like, oh, my God, I got to get another room. This guy smells terrible. The next day he was gone. I said, where did that guy go? He said, oh, he died last night. I said, thank God, man. My sheets were stinking. My pillowcases were stinking. I said, I was ready to ask for another room. Now, it didn't occur to me. I'm in that room for the same reason that guy is. He just died before I did. Sometimes powerless over alcohol, life unmanageable, just smells like stinky sheets, but it doesn't look like alcohol. I'm amazed that I'm sober. I was in there for three weeks, a week out of there. I'm drinking like I'd never been to the hospital, like I'd never been to. I thought, well, you're one of those people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And I went in and out of AA until October the 5th of 78 when I started this journey in sobriety. And uh, I knew I wasn't going to stay sober. I knew it was all a bunch of crap. I, I knew I didn't want to hear the steps. I know the promises. I can recite the fifth chapter backwards. I, I know all that. I know that it doesn't mean anything to me. You people are lucky. I'm unlucky. I'm coming to the same meetings you are. For some reason, you're getting. I'm not. Now, I don't remember who spoke that night, but but I remember what was said in my sponsor's car after the meeting. Now I'm in bad shape. I'm shaking. I smell bad. I look bad. No job, no car, no money. And my sponsor says, I want to thank you, Joe. You helped save my life this past year. And I thought, oh, God, I'll listen to this crap. I said, really, Mike, how'd I help you? And he said, well, my mother had leukemia and I made a deal with God. You keep my mom from dying and I'll stay sober. she dies, the hell with you, the hell with my sponsor. I'm going to drink. And he you know, she died. And I was ready to go drink. I was really ready to go drink. I was so torn up about the death of my mother. But you drank. And I saw how it was tearing your life up. When you came back today, the shape you were in, he thought, oh my God, that's the last thing I need right now in my life. Thanks, Joe. You really teach me a lot. And I thought, this guy's hustling me. You know, this guy, he was really thanking me for saving his life, but in my warped mind, I thought, this guy's using me. And I looked at him, I said, well, you son of a bitch, I'm not going to teach you anymore. And I thought, I'm going to do everything you do, wise guy. I'm going to smoke the same cigarettes you smoke, go to the same meetings you go to, tell the same dumb jokes you tell night after night. And when it doesn't work, like everything I've tried up till now, I can go, told you so. Who's helping who now? And I've been sober ever since that day by taking action that sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous take to stay sober, that what he did and what I did was take action to get in contact with a power greater than myself that was going to protect me from me. I had such a black and white, right and wrong, up and down, left and white view of the world. And A confused me. A is so loving. It's so wide. It's so gentle. It's so forgiving. You know, I started reading the big book, And I I said, well, are we going to get on our knees and do this third step? He says, well, no. Where do you see that in the big book?" I said, well, I hear people say they do an official third step. And I said, he said, well, show me where that's at. They all do this prayer. And he goes, you better go back and read that again. So I read it. And it says, many of us said, it didn't say all of us said this prayer. And then it goes on to say, you can do it by yourself. You can even change the wording as long as the idea is honestly expressed. He said, so where's the official one, Joe? I go, well, precisely how does that work? He said, that is precisely how it works. I went, oh, this stuff's hurting my head because I'm black, white, good, bad, right, wrong. And uh, I write the inventory and I read it to him. I couldn't believe I did that. I couldn't believe I did that. I told him all the rotten, dirty crap I'd ever done. And I I didn't feel immediate relief. Matter of fact, when I went back to my room, I thought, how could you have exposed yourself to that guy, man? I went back to my room and I, I misread and misunderstood the big book, but I was willing to try it. You know, when I read the seven-step prayer, in my mind, it says, okay, God, help me. And it doesn't say that at all. And matter of fact, I went and talked to him about that prayer. And he says, well, you might want to read that again. Not everybody said that prayer. I went, what? He said, yeah, not everybody says that prayer. I said, you said, you better go back and read it. Read it. And it says, when ready, we said something like this it didn't say, we all said this. It says, we said something like this. It leaves you this latitude to talk to God on your terms and meet God and he'll meet you where you're at on the path. And I'm thinking, well, precisely, how does that work? He said, that is precisely how it works. I'm going, this is getting better by the minute. I mean, it really,
1: it confused me. And the thing I got out of the inventory in the fifth step wasn't that I found out I was selfish, dishonest,
0: self-seeking, and frightened? Yeah, that was a shock that it was me. I finally realized it was me and it wasn't them.
1: But this is the big thing I got out of it. The next day, I saw him at an AA meeting, and he was happy to see me. And I know what I told him.
0: I know the things that I shared with him about my life that I was totally embarrassed about.
1: And he was happy to see me. Do you know how that touched me? That touched me right here. It, it touched me.
0: I was such a lonely, isolated young man. I was embarrassed about my life. And this guy was happy to see me and he saw all of me. And a week later, he was still happy to see me. Do you know what kind of effect that had on me? I walked out of the darkness into the light and this man just smiling, going, come on and be with us. Come on and be with I thought, you really? It always makes me want to cry. It's like, You really want me to be in your life? And he said, yeah. He said, I need you to stay sober. Please come with me. And from that time on, he had me in the palm of his hand. I trusted that man with my life
1: because he had seen all of me, and he wanted me in his life. He loved me for who I was. It had been a long time since anybody loved me for who I was. My alcoholism wouldn't let him.
0: I took those steps and uh, I had another awakening a few months sober. And the time I got sober till the two month awakening, I worked in a project down in Cincinnati at Laurel Homes in Lincoln Court, rough area. And I come up out of this building at two in the morning and it's, it's snowing real light. I've been sober a couple months.
1: And uh, I went, wow, look at that. I was, I was oblivious to where I was at. I said, look how beautiful that is. God, look how
0: beautiful that is. I felt so wonderful. I felt like I did in my mother's house, looking at that rock garden. I thought, I never thought I could experience this feeling again. I I thought, wow, have I lost my mind? And, you know, we we talk about the promises, and the promises are a description of a spiritual awakening, an awakening of my spirit. So the world looks different without changing the world at all, just like alcohol did. And I called my sponsor. I said, am I out of my mind? He says, no, Joe. He says, you're free. He says, that's what the steps do. They remove the obsession and render the sufferer happy, whole, and useful. You're going to have to get used to that. I said, are you sure? I said, "I, I didn't know you were allowed to feel this good sober. He says, yeah, you're free to live your life any way you want, as long as you make A the most important thing in your life first above everything else you can feel like that as much as you want most of the time and i went wow and that's the new life on life's term the feeling of well-being that everything was going to be okay i'm sober two months i i didn't know how my life was going to turn out i hadn't established my position in society or my education level or anything like that but the wonderful thing was is i had the feeling like i didn't have to know I didn't have to know how anything turned out. I was okay right now. I was okay. And I couldn't believe I would ever feel okay again. I was so beaten down that when I had that experience at two months sober, I grabbed on the A and I thought, I've got my seat. You're going to have to get yours because I am not letting go of this. I don't care what happens. And it's it's a definition of the third step to me. The third step to me is, you protect me from myself so I don't drink. And you can do anything you want with my life. I don't care where I live. I don't care how much money I make. I don't care what I do for a living. I don't care what kind of car I have. Just please protect me from myself. The feeling of, it doesn't matter how it turns out, is the most wonderful feeling I had ever experienced in my life. And on my journey in the last 44 plus years, I forget that. It seems like from time to time, I start to worry about how certain areas of my life are going to turn out. And I'm gently reminded, oh, you remember the original agreement? Do you remember when you had nothing? And now all of a sudden, you're going to worry about your 401k. You're going to worry about your house that you never had. You're going to worry about your health. When you should have been dead all these years ago i'll forget the original agreement and the original agreement takes me back to it doesn't matter and i feel so good when i doesn't matter how my life's going to turn out some guy the other day called me and he said you know how many days i've been sober i said well why would you care about that And he said, Well, I put my sobriety date in a sobriety counter and he's been sober 15 years and he was sober so many thousand days. I said, Oh, okay. And I thought, What a goof. And then I thought to myself, I wonder how many days I've been sober. (laughs) So I got the app and I put it in there. And at that time, I think it was 16,363 days. I thought, Well, that's a lot of days. And then I thought to myself, I have been to a meeting probably close to 16,000 days out of that 16,363
1: days, which means I have prayed at least two times every meeting. Wow, I've prayed 32,000 times since I've been sober. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. I pray
0: in the morning and I pray in the evening. I've prayed 64,000 times. I go, well, wait a minute. I ask God for guidance at least once a day. I have prayed 80 thousand times since i have been sober and i thought i was not aware of that till that goofball called me and talked about the sobriety counter and i thought how could i have been so unaware of something that i've done more than go to meetings and take steps uh, that work with drunks i have prayed more than anything i've done in sobriety and i thought If you would have told me when I was new, you're going to pray 80,000 times. I go, well, why would I do that? I've got stuff to do. I need a job. What the hell? Why would I pray? I mean, you can go pray. I've got stuff to do. But now it's like the main part of my life. It's become part of my waking moments. I I started meditating in 07 on purpose. And uh, I'd say out of 5,700 days, I've meditated 5,000 times. I start my day out and I'll get up and I'll make the bed, I'll shower and shave, I'll do the dishes, and I'll come here in the computer room, and I'll put my phone on airplane mode, and I'll listen to a guided meditation, or I'll meditate on, say, The Course of Miracles, A Lesson, in Course in Miracles. I'll meditate for 20 minutes to a half hour, and that's how I start my day out, and my day just goes better by doing that. I never thought I would have value in prayer and meditation and the i think the 11th step is one of the most uh, unused steps out of the 12 because the alcoholic like me doesn't see any value in it until they start doing it so uh i've been made useful in ways i I never wanted to be made useful to people i never wanted to be useful to because you remember the third step remember the original agreement use me any way you want (laughs) I supported my brother in prison for 20 years. I went to see him every month for 20 years. I never wanted to do that. Who wants to do that? But God said, I think you need to do that. Remember the original agreement? Let me use you to do that. I helped raise my granddaughter for 12 years. And uh, you don't know what God's will is until you do it. You know, it's not really obvious a lot of times. You know, my son came home with a one-year-old daughter. And to be honest with you, my ego went, I don't want to raise another kid. And I ended up taking care of her for the next 12 years. And when she left, I said, don't forget me. She said, I won't, Paul. I love you. I said, I love you too, but don't forget. Sometimes God's will doesn't look like something we want to do. It looks like maybe you ought to get up at seven o'clock and talk at a meeting on Sunday morning in Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, it might not be what you want to do, but it ends up being what you want to do. Thank you. Oh.
1: And that was Joe from the Kenwood High Noon meeting. Thanks a lot, Joe, for being on
0: our uh, podcast, Two Sober Chicks, and for joining us at AA Solution Seekers
1: Beginners Meeting. You can find that meeting on online intergroup AA. Thanks for joining us.